Okay, so the way we're going to start, uh, this is how we start every Sunday uh, here before we jump into the text uh, for the sermon. Talk to our little ones, our young ones, kids, to let y'all know where we are going, uh, what the sermon is going to be about. Okay, so ready? Kids, first question. Mm. What book of the Bible are we in? Come on, yell, Job, thank you, got it. Last week we weren't quite sure. <laughs> this week we are. Job, nailed it. Okay, second question. Kids, do any of you drink coffee? Any coffee drinkers? Show of hands. I know we got one over here. Two, some of the older ones. Three, <laughs> that's fantastic. Hey, coffee drinkers, yes, cannot get much done without that first cup of coffee in the morning. How about tea? Any tea drinkers? Oh, we got tea drinkers too. Okay, yes, yes. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Yes. Wow. Anybody drink coffee and tea? Not like together, but you're both a coffee drinker. I'm a coffee drinker and a tea drinker. Like start off with coffee in the morning, move on to uh, coffee in the afternoon, and then move to tea in the evening. I love that stuff. Okay. Anybody ever drink a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or some juice for, from something as fancy as this? Kids. Yes, we have one. Italy has been entrusted to something. And <laughs> Livy Ann and Charlotte saved them too. Okay, something as fancy as this. Okay, why would you think if you haven't, if you're not allowed to drink from something as fancy as this, why not, kids? <laughs> why, why not? Because it's breakable. This is not mine. Did y'all hear that? My mom is freaking out right now. Okay, uh, it's because it's breakable and because these cups, these are really fancy, really super fancy, and because they're fancy, uh, they're more expensive, and because they're fancy and expensive, they're fragile. It's just all, all fancy, super expensive things are fragile. That's how they get you. Because what happens if this breaks? What do you got to do? If I, go ahead, Colby. You got you to go replace it. You got to go get a new one. Unless you're in Japan. In Japan, there is this thing called, uh, let me make sure I get this right, kintsugi. Better mispronounce that. It's, this, it's, it's an art. It's the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery, broken china, with, uh, with liquid gold. So they'll melt down gold, take the broken pieces, and glue it back together. Uh, and so what you'll see is these broken pieces these broken cups that have, been, that have been fixed, they've got these lines of gold running through them. And the ones that have been broken and fixed are now more expensive. They're more valuable, and the Japanese consider them more beautiful than the fine stuff that has not been broken. The Japanese do this because they think these broken, those, those beautiful cups that have been broken, that they're worth saving. And the ones that have been saved are even more beautiful than the ones that are just fine. Kids, that's who Job is. That's who Job is. Job is like one of those broken cups. This one's not broken. He's like one of those broken cups that has been repaired with that, with that super glue of gold. Uh, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see him broken today. Uh, we're going to see him so beat up. And instead of just throwing him away, and instead of just feeling oh so, so sorry for Job, what we see is that God is fixing him. And God is actually holding Job together with the super glue gold of his grace. 
So here's what that has to do with you guys. Kids, you know this because you know, you're old enough to know this. Uh, even babies have these problems. Of, like you're going to have hard times in life. Like hard stuff is going to come at you in this life. And there are going to be times in your life, kids, young ones, where you feel like, you feel like you're broken. But because you believe in Jesus, because you believe that Jesus has saved you with his life and with his death, yes, yes, you're broken, and God is fixing you. Even in your brokenness, he is fixing you with his love and his grace, and he is going to hold you together. That's his promise to us, and God makes good on his promises. So that's what we're going to see today. I'm going to put this over here so my mom can calm down and it's safe. I won't touch it. Okay. Um, the book of Job. We are in the book of Job. In the book of Job, we keep saying in a word, it is about conflict. That Satan challenges God that since the fall, mankind, the world, it all belongs to him. And God challenges Satan's challenge. Ooh, have you seen my servant Job? You think you've won. You think it's over, but, but look down. My promise of grace is still there. And Satan then challenges God's challenge that Job is he's a liar. And so God is a liar. And the gospel of grace, it's an empty lie. So God says, challenge accepted. And we get a conflict of champions. In the text this morning, you will see we are still in the prologue, what they call the prologue of Job, which seems gratuitous because the book of Job is really, really long and the summer is not that long. Yes, that's true. Uh, but the prologue of Job is like the first three chapters of Genesis, where if you, can get, if you can get that, like you get the rest of what follows. Same thing with the prologue of Job. If we can really get this, we'll, we'll be able to get everything else that follows. So please stand for the reading of God's word, Job chapter one. We're gonna begin in verse 13. Now there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants, and consume them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness. And struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshiped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. 
Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil uh, that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore the robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Here's Job. Job uh, the book of Job is about a conflict between God and Satan, whether the gospel promise of salvation in the covenant of grace, given right after the fall, it's all about whether or not that's true. And here, here's where we begin to see that the way Job, the book of Job unfolds, is in a series of conflicts. It's all about conflict. It's going gonna, it's gonna to unfold in a series of conflicts. And the first, and the major conflict is between God and Satan. And now, now we have champions, plural. God has a champion that will prove his gospel true. That's Job. He's going to be God's champion. And at first, Satan is going to be his own champion, and he's going to come at Job himself. So Satan goes to Job, and he causes all kinds of awful suffering. And it all begins, it says, it all begins when Job's children are feasting together. And we've got to remember, we remember from earlier in chapter 1, that when his kids feast, Job prepares sacrifices. Uh, to perform with them when they're done feasting. He, he's preparing sacrifices to God in case his kids are going overboard on the partying and they sin against God. Okay, that's when all the trouble starts, which is really important that, that as the kids are feasting, Job is preparing sacrifices to God. Satan had challenged God that Job was pious only because of his prosperity, and now we're going to see Job's piety and his affliction side by side. 
And the first, this all happens uh, through these man-made evil, these marauders, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, and these nature disasters, and they go back and forth. And he loses all his wealth, he loses all his resources, he loses all of his livestock, and he loses all of his servants. And given the sheer number of livestock that Job had, he would have had scores of servants. And so the tragic loss of life here, it, can, it cannot be overstated. And then Job loses his children. Losing one of your children, is, is, there, is there any greater suffering? Job loses all of them. And we don't know how long this took, how this all unfolded, what, over what kind of time period, but what's communicated is this is, this, it's one thing after another. And what we see here, uh, what we're going to see throughout is that Job is suicidal. He is wishing he was dead. And so we have to, we've got to read this. We want to say, yes, we've got to read this theologically with an understanding of what's going on behind the scenes and what's going to happen. And we've got to read this with our hearts. Can you imagine? And in all of this, it says that Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He doesn't sin. He worships in the midst of his tragedy. This could be a whole other sermon, but there's no transition from his grieving to his worship. In his grief, he worships. And the crazy thing about Job here is, is that Job doesn't just maintain his spirituality in all of this, but it's in his affliction that he, that he finds occasion for worship. And that is a problem for us because how? Uh, I think it, it, it works something like this. We just picked up our two younger kids from camp yesterday. I've already been told this morning I look disheveled. Visitors, I apologize. This is not normally, yeah, if you see me up close um, in a few minutes. Um, they've been gone two weeks. Uh, so we're physically, emotionally spent at this point, getting them back. Uh, but the two weeks, and the two weeks before uh, they went, our oldest uh, was gone at camp. And some of you have heard that and said poor planning on our part. Uh, they didn't go at the same time. And we're told that, and we get the head shaking. And uh, yeah, I know. Uh, and, and, and we did. We thought that at first, too. Like, oh, that was really poor planning. Uh, except it was super hard when uh, one was away, the others were away. And so uh, every day made it harder when the two little ones away. So we squeezed the oldest one a whole, whole lot. Uh, he was smothered with affection. I think he wanted to go back to camp. Um, but that's this thing of that separation, and yes, it was intentional. Yes, we planned it. Yes. But still, that separation, you realize how much you really like your kids. And you're reminded of everything good about them, and you long for even the hard stuff. You're reminded how awesome your children are and what a gift from God they are how much you love them. And, and, and the point is not, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder thing. That's true. 
But listen, it's more than that. It's with that kind of separation, you realize how precious your time is with your kids. Uh, because you're not going to have them forever and they come back from camp and they're more kind of their own person than they were just two weeks you know, earlier. Uh, that they're, the, they're not going to be with you forever. They're their own persons who are going to grow up and they're going to leave you. And they're supposed to. But they're going to leave you uh, and you don't have them forever. Uh, and you, you think about that. That hits you and you want to soak up every minute you have when they're away. Okay, You know this when friends move away. Uh, we all know this because of COVID, when we were separated uh, from all our loved ones and our friends, and oh my goodness, you know, people are the worst, and I forgot how much I love people, kind of thing. And that time with them is, is precious, and it does, not, it does not last in this life. It doesn't last forever. And, and here's a question for us. Are we already forgetting that lesson that we learned uh, uh, from the harsh reality of that pandemic just, just months later of how precious it is to be together, to see each other's faces. We don't own the things in our lives. We don't even own our own lives. They're gifts. Even the people in your life, they're gifts. And we are just stewarding those gifts for a time. So how is Job finding occasion to worship in his affliction he says, in that really famous quote of his, naked I came from my mother's room, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. As in Job realizes he never really truly owned anything uh, of greatest value to him, that it was all a gift of God, and he was merely stewarding it. And now he sees the utter preciousness of it all. And what a gift from God. There's an Old Testament scholar named Meredith Klein. Everything good that I say today is I'm just totally, it's him. Um, he says this. He says, Job measures the greatness of his loss, and in measuring the greatness of his loss, he takes stock of the abundance that was entrusted to his stewardship. That's, that's how he, that's the how. You find occasion to worship in your affliction. Satan had prophesied, make him suffer. Job will curse you. Here it is, and Job praises God. Satan is then summoned back to the heavenly court, and he makes the same bow. So like, where have you been? I've been walking to and fro on the earth like I own it because I do. But notice he does not volunteer any report on his duel with Job. And God calls him out on it in front of everyone. And he declares openly the success of Job. And when he says to Satan, when he says this, and you incited me against him without, the without reason, that's an echo. That's God mocking Satan. And Satan's earlier accusation of Job and his accusation of God earlier when he said, does Job fear God for no reason? Does Job fear God without reason? Same word, and now it's obvious, God says, that Job does serve God for no reason other than for God. And therefore, it was for no reason that Satan had accused him. You could, you could say right there, 
battle over. You know, duel done. Challenge accepted and overcome. The book of Job could end right there. On that note, God proves Satan wrong. His gospel is true. And then right when you think it's over, it's just beginning. Because Satan refuses to admit defeat at this point, and having been openly mocked in front of everyone in heaven, Satan then mocks Job's praise of God. I mean, the language here is so, it's so rich. Uh, uh, it, Satan mocks Job's praise of God when, when Job says, uh, you know, naked I came into the world. He's like, oh, naked I came into the world. Naked I'll leave it. Blah, 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 blah. Naked. Okay, how about this? Skin for skin. It's the same word. Skin for skin. All that a man has, he'll give for his life. So Satan implies that Job's praise of God was this calculated response of a, of a shrewd bargainer. As in, who, who is, yeah, 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 sure, yes, he's, he's, he's upset and he's sad, but ultimately, he's just worried about his own physical well-being, and he's faking his love for you, God. And it's, it's all this praise, it's his health insurance. He just doesn't want you to touch him. Let me touch him. If God will let Satan touch Job himself and his health, you know, their little sham religious deal will be exposed for what it is, and Job will curse God, Satan says. And God says, challenge accepted. So then Job loses his health. And uh, here, modern medical opinion is not unanimous in its diagnosis of uh, what's going on with Job and his disease. But it was, it was apparently a hopeless situation as Job thinks he is going to, in the end, die. And what we read here and what we read later in the book, I'm just going to kind of bring it all to four here. Uh, we read about his symptoms. They included inflamed eruptions uh, accompanied with you know, intense itching. There's gross maggots and ulcers. That's from chapter 7. There's erosion of his, his bones or whittling away, eroding. Chapter 30, there is the blackening and falling off of his skin. Read about that in chapter 30. He has terrifying nightmares. Read about that in chapter 7. So here's this, one, this once, the, the greatest man of the East. He is now reduced to a shell of himself, to an outsider, and he is cast out. He's driven off, and now he lives in the town garbage heap. That's what it is, is in the ashes. He's in the garbage heap. He's on the dung hill, scraping himself into his sores with broken pottery. And uh, since the direct attack on Job was not successful, and now having struck down Job himself, Satan is, gonna go, Satan is now going to go and employ a champion of his own. And the heartbreaking thing here is the first champion of Satan is Job's wife. Unwittingly, Job's wife becomes the mouthpiece of Satan, telling Job to do the very thing Satan is hoping that he will do. Curse God and die. But Job rebukes his wife, and even here it says that in doing this, Job did not sin because he rebukes his wife lovingly and graciously. Again, reading this with our hearts, our, our hearts really do go out to Job's wife. I mean, can, you, can you imagine? 
everything she is everything he's lost she has lost too all of her children and at this point she 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 has she's at the end she's given up and she's now taking out her anger and her sorrow out on job and he responds saying this isn't this isn't you like you're you're talking you're not talking you're not talking like yourself this isn't you he doesn't call her a fool he doesn't say you fool he doesn't go he says you're talking as if you were foolish and that's not you and i won't listen to this and yeah as our hearts go out to job's wife you, you know all the, you know and our sympathy here for job who's still suffering in all of this and his beloved wife is now turning on him he is utterly alone he is now totally utterly alone but he is still believing and again that is a problem for us because like how 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 is that possible again right here job exposes the emptiness of satan's accusations against him and against god you know satan's accusation god your your gospel is a prosperity gospel job's got piety because he's got prosperity and we here listen we here we're really good and people in our circles we're really good at knocking the prosperity gospel uh, that is so abundantly present in houston and and, and in the world and let me just say this, we should knock it. Oh, we, we, really, we really should expose it and knock it down for the total sham and lie that it is, because it is. And we're also susceptible to it. And we need to admit that too. As in, we, we lose money, a natural disaster hits us, and that's just our favorite here in Houston. Uh, uh, other people do us harm. A loved one dies. We get sick. We die. We look up to heaven and we say, like, God, what? Like, why? Why me? Why me? Why would you let this happen to me? Why would you let this happen to us? Let me, let me give you some encouragement because I'm really not, I'm not shaming any of us here. Uh, because I know you he we hear that accusation and I know we think too, like, okay, yeah, that, okay, what you're saying does make sense of my experience when I'm down, when I'm suffering, uh, when I'm in the heat of it. Sure, I, I, I wonder. Sometimes I say like, God, come on, please, what, why would you? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but uh, I, like when I hear that prosperity gospel stuff, I know it's bogus. So where's the disconnect there? Here's the, I mean this to be a huge help to us. This is the connection. The connection is our shared heritage with the, uh, this, the history that we share with the prosperity gospel peddlers. It's this. Piety and prosperity used to go hand in hand when before the fall that's all of our history before the fall and we uh we all have that original arrangement with god sewn into our dna is how we are created it's sewn into the dna of our hearts as in that's how it used to work that's how it should work if we're pious then we prosper 
That was God's arrangement with Adam and Eve. And they rejected it. But that covenant between Adam and Eve, that covenant is written on your heart. Everybody in the world walks around thinking with this covenant from creation written on their heart, well, yeah, if I'm good, I'll prosper. It's written on the heart of every human who has ever lived, which is why every human must hear the good news of the gospel of grace. You gotta remember, and what we gotta remember is that the gospel, the gospel promised to Adam and Eve right after the fall, that Genesis 3.15 stuff, the assurance of pardon, that was passed down from generation to generation to generation. That is the gospel promise that Job is holding on to right here. Like he reminds his wife, listen, have we not received good from God? Like, yeah, sure, all our wealth, like all our people, all our children, our health, like, but the ultimate good that we have from God is God himself. Like we still have God. We are still in relationship with God. We have God himself because we have his grace. Like we know the world we live in is fallen. We can't forget that we're also going to get evil in this world too. And that's why God, that is why God's grace is so good. That's the context of it and that's why we need it. This verb that Job uses to receive, you know, to receive evil. Specifically, it means to receive evil in the world patiently. To receive patiently. Y'all, y'all remember that famous ancient uh, Canaanite proverb? Let me remind you. Uh, <laughs> this is real. Let me make this up. If ants, this sounds like an ancient Canaanite proverb. If ants are smitten, they do not receive it patiently. Same word here. If ants are smitten, they do not receive it patiently, but they bite the hand of the man who smites them. That's not what Job does. Job's not like the ant when he is smitten with evil. No, he receives it patiently. Patiently being like, he still believes in God. So, like, oh, the wisdom of Job's patience. He knows who he is. He knows the world he lives in. It is fallen. And he knows who God is. And he knows his grace. And he believes in it. Come what may. There's a really famous uh, counselor named uh, Dan Allender. He's, he's also an author. He's got a really well-known popular podcast. I heard this story he tells. Uh, he was in New Zealand. He's on sabbatical. Uh, and he's looking, at this, he's looking at this mountain range. And he's with these other tourists. And the guy next to him just kind of turns to him, politely, sincerely says, Wow, isn't it beautiful? And Dan Allender says, it is awesome. It is beautiful. And do you have anyone to thank for what you see? And the guy, the guy looks at Dan and says, what? what? And Allender says, when you see the beauty of that range, we are both worshiping, recognizing that we are small before this massive beauty, but worship is more than awe. Who are you grateful to for what you are looking at right now? Do you have anyone to thank for this? And the guy says, you religious? And Allender says, I don't think anyone who is close to me would use that word, but I am a follower of Jesus. And when I look at this, 
I see his majesty and his glory. He made it, and I am so thankful for all that he has done for me. Who do you think? And the guy had enough integrity to say, I believe in no God, so I have no one to thank. Okay, if God is in control, you know, the invitation right there is to live in a posture of gratitude if God is in control. It's all a gift, and he is the gift giver. So like, how can you thank someone for a gift if you deny that there's a gift giver? Right? And we can, we can readily get that. Like, we can get on board with that. We should thank God for the good stuff that we've got. Okay. The opposite is also true. Like, when we get the bad stuff, it's not that we should still have a posture of gratitude. We should, as stewards, for God's good gifts. We should, but we should also have patience in the midst of the bad stuff. Because it really doesn't make any sense to be mad at God when suffering comes, if he really doesn't exist, or if he's really not all powerful, or if he's really not all good and loving. If there's no God like that, we wouldn't be mad at him in the first place for not stopping evil and suffering. I want to make sure we're, we're tracking here. We are mad at God for not stopping evil and suffering because deep down we all, every single person on the face of this earth, because deep down we all know he is there and he is good and he is strong enough to stop it. And if you have a God so great that you can be mad at him for not stopping evil, then you have a God so great to have a reason that he sends these things into our lives, that he sends these things on earth that we may not be able to fully understand. The only way we could be sure that there's no God is that we know there's no point to suffering at all, and we don't know that. You can't know that. The, here's Job. This is faithfulness. And it's, it's not that he's full of faith in the sense that Job comprehends the mystery of his sufferings. He doesn't. It's faithfulness in that full of faith in that not comprehending. He still loves and worships God. That's faithfulness. And faithfulness that looks like patience. So Satan here tempted and he deceived Adam uh, even back in the garden, even while Adam was without sin, standing, you know, righteous in the garden. Okay, if he could pull that off, like how hard could it be to trip up the depraved sons of Adam and trample all over them? That's his thinking. This is not a fair fight. Think about this. Supernatural knowledge and supernatural power with the element of surprise all against a mortal. Like David and Goliath, Job would look at that and say, that's a fair fight. And here is the awesome wonder of redemptive grace. Sinner Job triumphantly stands where righteous Adam tragically fell. And the book of Job, it is a seal to us. It is an assurance to us 
of God's promise that he will bless the faithful with the gift of eternal salvation through the promised Savior to come. The Savior that was promised right there at the beginning. You look at this. You think of that Japanese uh, art. How valuable is Job to us? Full of God's grace, running through all of his brokenness, holding him together. You got to imagine the heavenly courtroom, God and Satan surrounded by the myriad of angel witnesses and the strategy of God. He's making it impossible for Satan to resort to whining about some naturalistic explanation for the wonder that God is about to work in Job. This is Job's steadfast love for God and his faith in the gospel. This is like the overwhelming advantage that God gives to Satan. Uh, it becomes the measure of the devil's disgrace and God's awesomeness for which he should be praised. So here God himself tells us uh, the most righteous man on earth. Uh, this is God saying this is the most righteous man on earth. And here we see the most righteous man on earth undergoing the most brutal affliction. Like the depths of suffering. And he overcomes and we know how. And I, we've got to say this. Job is not just like, who does that really sound like? It sounds like Jesus. Yes, it does. And yes, he is a signpost to Jesus, but he, Job is not just a signpost to Jesus. What this shows us is a man who overcomes all of this suffering because he believes in Jesus. Because he has put his faith in the promise of the one to come who will not be the most righteous person of anyone on earth. He will be the righteous one. Like the one perfect in righteousness. And he's the one who's going to suffer the death blow of suffering from, from the devil. And in taking that suffering, he is going to crush. And he himself will overcome the evil one and all sin and death itself. And he'll do it for us. When we picked up the kids for camp, we dropped off uh, right by Maisie's cabin. Uh, so we, we have our reunion with her. We're so excited. We're, we're hugging. We're kissing. We're mauling her, smothering. Uh, and we're celebrating. And someone takes a picture of us. And then Maisie turns to us and says, do, do you want to come see my cabin? Do you want to meet our counselors? And I looked at her and I said, uh, no, uh, not yet. I got to get Peyton. Because up the hill, Peyton was sitting on his steps, wondering if his parents were going to come for him. And he didn't know at that moment we were coming. I mean, here it is, round one and round two, they go to God. Because his champion wins, God wins. And again, this would be a fitting end to the book of Job. But Satan's not done but neither is Job because God's not done. Job doesn't know yet, but God is coming for him. And God has come for us and he's not done. He's not done. Loved ones, he's coming again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel that is so evidently displayed and the brokenness of Job's life. Uh, and Lord, we, we pray that, that it would sit, it would sit heavy upon us, uh, the beauty and the awesomeness of your love and your work of grace in Job's life 
that we would see it in our own lives. Uh, We thank you for our Lord and Savior. We thank you for every gift you have given us. Bless us to be stewards of that most ultimate gift of grace, of this gospel of grace, that we would continue to hold it out to ourselves, that we would continue to hold it out to each other, and that we would hold it out to anyone who wants to hear it because it's for them just as much as it is for us. Help us to be stewards and help us to be patient stewards uh, who know that you're coming for us. Come what may, today, tomorrow, the next day, we know that right now we have Jesus. We know that one day we will hold him as he smothers us with his love and affection. We long for that day. We pray it comes soon until it does preserve us in this faith. In Christ's name and for his glory, amen.